The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushduni had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. The Place of Women, Chalcedon Position Paper, number 47. One of the chronic problems of men is that too often they react instead of acting. The terms and nature of the problems of life are set by their opposition rather than by themselves, and the reactions are foolish. This has all too often been true of the reactions of men, Christian and non-Christian, to the women's liberation movement. The results are sometimes painful. Two examples will suffice. In one church, some of the women came together to study Scripture. The women were of varying ages, but with a common need to know the Bible better and its application to their everyday problems. The church ordered the meetings ended, although no problem had arisen. The concerns of the study were not ecclesiastical, and the meetings were not a part of the church's work, nor limited to church members. By no stretch of the imagination can any text of Scripture be made to forbid women to study Scripture together. In at least several other churches, the women are held in an unbiblical subjection which treats them as children, not adults. The Bible declares Sarah to be the model wife in her obedience and subjection. 1 Peter 3, 1-7 We cannot understand the meaning of that without recognizing the fact that on occasion, Sarah confident in the godliness of her position, gave Abraham an ultimatum. Genesis 16:5:21-9-13. And God declared, quote, In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. 
Unquote. Genesis 9:12, a sentence men rarely, if ever, use as a sermon text. Moreover, as Charles Hodge said with respect to Ephesians 5:22, the authority of the husband or any human authority is not unlimited. Quote, it extends over all departments, but is limited in all. First, by the nature of the relation, and secondly, by the higher authority of God. No superior, whether master, parent, husband, or magistrate, can make it obligatory on us either to do what God forbids or not to do what God commands. Unquote. Charles Hodge, Commentary on the Epistle to the Ephesians, page 314f. But this is not all. The stupidity of all too many men is nowhere more apparent than in the assumption that subordination means inferiority. Most of us have, at some time or other, and usually most of the time, have been subordinate to very inferior men. In a fallen world, this is routine. The world commonly appraises a man's position in terms of very limited criteria, such as wealth, birth, education, and the like. The natural aristocracy of talent and character usually does not prevail in a sinful society. To assume that preeminence in position and power is preeminence in intelligence, character, and ability is to assume that the men who rule in Washington, D.C. and in the Kremlin are the cream of history. Such a perspective would be sheer idiocy, but it is a kind of idiocy all too many men have in relationship to women. One aspect of this idiocy proudly taught as gospel by some such churches and pastors is the blasphemous assumption that the husband is the mediator between God and the wife. Scripture tells us that the husband is the head of the family, not a mediator, nor a little Christ. In relationship to the Lord, husband and wife are declared to be, quote, heirs together of the grace of life, unquote, 1 Peter 3, 7. The husband is not declared to be the central heir, nor the recipient of greater grace or wisdom. We are not told that the wife's prayers are hindered or void if she fails to pray through a mediator husband. Too many men want a lovely and charming wife, to serve them and then to be a silent zombie the rest of the time. Peter tells us that the prayers of a husband and a wife are hindered if either is false with respect to their duties under God. Some churches give men a cheap and false religion which justifies keeping a wife in line while the man is free to be his fallen self. Men find such a religion very palatable. When God ordained marriage, he also gave us a sentence to set forth its meaning. Quote, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Unquote. Genesis 2.24 This is the opposite of what too many see in marriage. The woman is viewed as leaving her parents and cleaving or adhering to her husband. That she does so is true enough, but the Bible stresses the requirement that the man make a break and cleave to his wife. Moreover, Jesus Christ declares that this is God's own statement, Matthew 19:5. Why, then, are commentaries and preachers silent about its meaning? It is clear that headship is given to the husband. 
Is it not here equally clear that a particular and very great centrality is given to the woman, who is, quote, the mother of all living, unquote, Genesis 3.20? Man is made of the bones and flesh of his father and mother, as C.A. Simpson has pointed out in the interpreter's Bible, to become, in the act of marriage, one flesh, one community of life with his wife. In the Hebrew, the word, quote, cleave, unquote, means to cling close together, to be joined together, stick, or follow closely after. Given this meaning, it is most significant that it is the man whom God in particular requires this of. Since headship is given to the man, the human expectation would be that woman must adhere to the man and cling to him. God, however, places another requirement on marriage the man must be joined to, cling to, or cleave unto his wife. Man, it should be noted, is given dominion over the earth, over the fish, birds, and animals, and he shares the exercise of that dominion with his wife. Genesis 1, 26-28 Man's headship is in the exercise of that dominion. When Sarah called Abraham, quote, Lord, unquote, 1 Peter 3, 1-7, it was because Abraham was the head in the exercise of their dominion under God's covenant. In other words, a man is given headship over his wife in the exercise of dominion, not dominion over her. A man's relationship to his parents is a blood relationship. He is genetically bone of their bones and flesh of their flesh. This, however, is the relationship he must, quote, leave, unquote, to, quote, cleave, Unquote, unto his wife, a non-blood relationship. This new non-genetic relationship must still become bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Genesis 2, 23-24 It would be dangerous and false to push the point too far or to see it as more than an important biblical analogy, but the analogy to circumcision is there. In circumcision, the organ of generation is made the covenant mark by its circumcised status, signifying that man's hope is not in generation, but in regeneration, a new life in the Lord. Circumcision, as Gerhardus Voss in Biblical Theology 1948 pointed out, quote, stands for justification and regeneration, plus sanctification, unquote. Romans 4, 9 through 12, Colossians 2, 11-13, page 105. In some sense, marriage is also comparable to a new life. The twain become, quote, one flesh, unquote, a new community of life. In terms of this unity, Paul uses marriage as a type of the unity of Christ in his church, Ephesians 5, 21-33. By this analogy, we are told that husbands must love their wives as Christ also loved the church. Quote, and gave himself for it, unquote. This plainly calls for sacrificial service to the new entity or life, the family. The headship of the husband is one of a comparable radical love and sacrificial service, not a tyrannical power. Headship in Scripture means our Lord makes clear service. Quote, he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, unquote. Matthew twenty three eleven, In the foot-washing episode, our Lord says, quote, 
I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Unquote. John thirteen fifteen. For men to seek the blessings of Christian marriage with pagan doctrines of headship is blasphemous. The family thus creates a new entity. The twain becomes one flesh. Two bloodlines and faith lines come together to create a new union, one which unites two heritages. Eugene Rosenstock Husey, in The Multiformity of Man, 1936, called attention to the fact that, in the old days, a bride went from her father's house to a new house with a unity of faith and heritage. Quote, she was not exposed to any other man's doctrine or ideals or values. Unquote. This is now completely changed by public or statist education. The state imposes many fathers on a family's sons and daughters. These teach creeds and values antagonistic to those of the pupils' families. The result, said Rosenstock Husey, is a polytheistic education. Quote, Thus, a modern man is not marrying one man's daughter, but many men's pupil. Unquote. And the same polytheistic education is true for the young man. The result is that, instead of marriage creating a new entity, it creates another carbon copy of a machine-stamped, factory-assembled status model. With the teaching of sex education in these, quote, public, unquote, schools, carbon copy techniques are carried to the marriage bed, where performance is by the book model, and in terms of the most recent sexological research. That problem's result should not surprise us. One of the reasons for Christian schools is to preserve the priority of the family in the life of the child. The state school undercuts the Christian family and is anti-familistic and thus is the poorest kind of training ground for marriage. The biblical family is by nature future-oriented because it requires that there be a continuity of faith and honor. It maintains its roots in the past. Quote, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Unquote. Exodus twenty twelve. This, quote, honor, unquote, means continuity and love. At the same time, there must be a departure, leaving father and mother to cleave unto one's wife. Past, present, and future are from God and under God. A status world is different. The goal of the state is control and the restriction of change to the state. Instead of the individual or family as the source of innovation, change, and entrepreneurship, we then have the state in control of all these things. The state, however, when it becomes this powerful, becomes a vast bureaucracy and it gives us a frozen, prearranged world, not a future. The family is the true wellspring of the future, not the state. And the woman is the key to it. The status school is a citizen-producing factory designed to manufacture people whose every loyalty is eroded. No family ties bind the well-taught status school product. Thus, all competing institutions or loyalties of family, faith, and heritage are eliminated. The result is a mass man. Such a man is easily a rebel, a malcontent, or a drone but he is not capable of anything but a status answer to problems, because for him, no other agency has any stature or viability. He is a factory product with standardized reactions and responses. 
The biblical family, however, is future-oriented. It begins under God as an act of faith, not a trial experiment in living. It is governed by faith and by a way of life that ties the past to the present and to the future. The grandparents and the parents alike share a concern for the children's future and for the continuity of faith and life. At the same time, they have a concern that there be progress for the children. Some economists have soberly predicted that the current and coming generation will be the first in American history whose standard of living will be lower than that of their parents. If status controls continue and increase, this may well be true, because statism seeks a frozen, prearranged world order, not a free one. Scripture orders a man to cleave or adhere to his wife because the godly woman is the mother of life. To cleave to one's wife means that one clings to or follows closely after not his parents, but his wife. To cleave to one's wife means that a man sees the future with her and in terms of her, not in terms of his past, nor in terms of the state. We are definitely not told to cleave to or follow closely after the state, our president, governor, or a prime minister. All too many men are more married to the state and its promises than to their wives, and the result is what can be called orgasmic politics. The future hope is then political, not personal. Marriage is a personal act between two persons creating a very personal, quote, one flesh, unquote, under the very personal God of Scripture. The future created by the family in Christ is not the impersonal monster world of statist planners, but a free society in the Lord. The dominion mandate of Genesis 1, 26-28 is followed by the institution of marriage. Genesis 2, 20-24. These are not unrelated. The second implements the first. The headship of men does not mean the shelving of women. The Pauline epistles tell us plainly how real and extensive the role of women was in the New Testament church. Men who seek to make a woman the mere adjunct of themselves are stupid, foolish, and unchristian. They pass up the wealth of God's way for the poverty of their ego. The churches which relegate women to a limbo of irrelevance are guilty before God. Subordination does not mean irrelevance nor incompetence. If this were true, every corporation would be better off if all the staff and employees were fired and only the chairman of the board remained. It would commonly mean the departure of intelligence. In terms of scripture, the women's liberation movement is nonsense, but so too is the position of all too many churchmen. Genesis 2.24 tells us something we dare not forget. Beginning with the first couple, Adam and Eve, God requires a leaving and a cleaving. There is a natural and a happy cleaving by women to their husbands, to godly husbands. But there is the cleaving which is central, is commanded by God, and is at heart of true marriage. It is by the husband to the wife. February 1984 Kenoticism The quote, gospel, unquote, of defeat. Chalcedon Position Paper, number 48 the Doctrine of Kenosis, see position paper number 45, 
as one of the great hidden influences of our time. It is a hidden influence because it has become so much a part of the intellectual atmosphere that it is commonly taken for granted, as we take the sun, the air, and the ground beneath our feet for granted. Its immediate western origins were in old Russia, but its original home was in the Far East. It came westward through Greco-Roman thinkers, but also later it came directly from the Orient. Buddhism, in particular, has been a fertile ground for such influences, as well as Hindu religions. Some illustrations of such thinking which have passed into Western thought will tell us much. A Buddhist sect tells of a, a bodhisattva, a perfected man, who manifested perfect love and knowledge. On seeing a hungry mother, tiger, with unfed and hungry cubs, the bodhisattva threw himself down the cliff to provide food for the hungry tigers. This act of self-sacrifice is seen as exemplifying holiness. Marxism, especially in China, is full of like tales to promote its cause. Another story is retold by the chaplain of a, quote, Christian, unquote, mental hospital, an old Buddhist holy man seeing a scorpion about to be swept away by a flooding river current worked to save the scorpion. But the scorpion only kept poisoning the holy man's hands with his sting, which promised death. When rebuked for his efforts, the holy man said, quote, Because it is the scorpion's nature to sting, why should I give up my nature to care? Unquote. The chaplain then compared the holy man to God who, quote, keeps trying, unquote, even when we respond like the scorpion. See my Institutes of Biblical Law, Volume 2, Law and Society, page 478F. Unitarianism was a major source and influence in the introduction of kenosis into the United States. Moncure Daniel Conway in My Pilgrimage to the Wise Men of the East promoted much of this in the latter half of the 19th century. Conway was particularly impressed by the example of Quan Yin, the Chinese goddess of mercy. Conway wrote, quote, She is the woman who refused to enter paradise so long as any human is excluded. Never will I receive individual salvation, she said, and still remains outside the gates of heaven, unquote. Page 71. Canonic thinking prepared the way for the ready reception of Buddhist and other Eastern religions in the West. The philosophical premise of these religions is world and life negation. The ultimacy of non-being and defeat is presupposed, and an essential pacifism and non-resistance to problems, challenges, crises, and evils results. Kenosis and Eastern religions program a man for the acceptance of defeat. As a result, eschatologies of defeat have become popular. Men program themselves to be losers, to be defeated, and to live with evil rather than to overcome it. As a result, the Western world, despite its marked advantages, is faltering and retreating. The lines are turning cowards before mice. The basic thrust of kenosis is submit. The basic faith of Scripture is that, quote, Jesus Christ is Lord, unquote, Philippians 2, 11, and Savior, John three sixteen, and in His name we must, quote, occupy, unquote, till He comes, Luke nineteen thirteen. 
The occasional superficial resemblances between Canonic faith and the Bible cannot overcome the vast gulf between the two faiths. According to the strict form of kenosis in, quote, Christian, unquote, theology, Christ, in his incarnation, laid aside his divine self-consciousness. Only gradually and dimly at times was he aware of his divine being. This is plainly contradicted by many texts, such as John 1, 14-18. It was his, quote, fullness, unquote, that, quote, all we received, unquote. His divinity was plainly manifested in his every word, thought, and deed. As for the cross, it was not a canonic act, but atonement, a very different thing. Kenosis does not produce a godly morality. It is of interest that a leading American preacher of Kenosis was the famous and notorious Henry Ward Beecher. Kenosis places the emphasis on a pacifistic submission rather than on faith and obedience to the every word of God, Matthew 4, 4. Canonic faith places very great emphasis on humiliation. Because Christ's incarnation is seen as a humiliation of his deity, humiliation is seen as the model for Christian morality and behavior. The fallacy of such thinking is that we are not gods, and to be Christian is for us not a humiliation, but our glory. The word of God is a command word, and it is God's plan and law for victory, not defeat. We are required to believe and obey the Lord, not to be humiliated. One very prominent pastor of some years ago, and a very well-paid one, constantly courted humiliation. Although having a good wardrobe, he appeared at banquets poorly dressed, to the point of being an embarrassment. There is an affinity between kenosis and psychological masochism. Masochism seeks self-abasement and punishment as ways of making atonement. The masochist does not find his freedom in Christ's atonement. He seeks to pay for his own sins by a variety of actions which bring punishment, shame, and defeat upon himself. This is closely related to kenotic theory, which often sees victory as meaning defeat. This is apparent in Ronald J. Sider and Richard K. Taylor, Nuclear Holocaust and Christian Hope, 1982. It is very much in evidence in the Vietnamese classic, The Tale of Q, written in the early 1800s by Nguyen Du. It pictures a society of victims, punished for crimes and sins they did not commit. The thesis of this tale is that all things in the universe work together for evil, the exact reverse of Romans 8.28. The tale of Q is a kind of popular handbook in Vietnam, and it tells us much about that country. The poem tells us that the root of good lies in man, but God is mean and cruel. Basic to its perspective is the doctrine of reincarnation. If people in some previous life committed sins... They must expiate their guilt now. Hence, punishment now must be seen as our fate, and we must undergo humiliation and many horrors to escape the cycle of karma. We have a, quote, debt of grief to fate, unquote. Here we see the religious roots of kenosis in reincarnation, a radically anti-biblical doctrine. The illogical self-humiliation and self-abasement which underlies canonic thinking, has its origin in a non-Christian belief 
in self-atonement through self-punishment. Believers in the Telef-Q are programmed for defeat. The infiltration of canonic thinking into Christendom is also a program for defeat. It is born of defective Christian thinking, and it erodes the life of faith in favor of a life of defeat. Defeatism is all too much a part of the modern mentality. Some years ago, in a very important study, Samuel J. Warner described the urge to mass destruction, 1957. His perspective was not Christian, but his work fits best into a Christian context in its implications. Warner noted that many of the living hate all life and seek to destroy all life. Nietzsche was for him a classic example of this. Such people have an essential nihilism, and they promote and counsel courses of action which are absurd and which lead to disaster and death. They seek defeat for themselves and for others, and advocate courses which will promote it. Their goal is frustration, humiliation, and defeat. All things Nietzsche invited while professing something else. Such people work against life-preserving values in favor of life-defeating and destroying ones. They may profess a doctrine of love or of power, but they manifest hatred and self-defeat. Indeed, said Warner, such people seek, quote, victory through defeat, unquote. In example, they seek to equate defeat and destruction with a, quote, moral, unquote, victory. What they in fact manifest is an, quote, urge to mass destruction, unquote. Warner's analysis was psychological, not theological. All the same, his study was telling and important. All too commonly, morality and virtue are ascribed to masochistic tendencies and programs which promise only destruction for the West. These programs include inflation, foreign aid, foreign loans by major banks, and much, much more. Behind all these trends is the doctrine of kenosis, which sees morality not in terms of obedience to God's word, but as a self-emptying. A while back, see 1967, a godly friend guided a dedicated pastor and his wife in the investment of their limited savings. His counsel was particularly astute and well-informed. In a few years, before they realized what had happened, their assets increased very dramatically. Instead of being glad, the couple was badly shaken and upset. They had expected something only slightly better than bank interest as their returns. Their response? They divested themselves of all their holdings and gave away all their profits in order to regain their canonic, quote, purity, unquote. They thought it shameful and unbecoming to be other than either poor or only modestly well-off. They were insistent to an absurd degree that virtue requires a self-emptying and deprivation. They could not see that the Bible equates virtue with faithfulness to the Lord and His law word, not self-deprivation. Kenosis is a recent heresy in the West. Older theological works makes no mention of it because it did not then exist in Western Europe, nor in the United States. Pietism and quietism were in fact providing the seedbed for the receptivity to kenosis when it moved into Germany, circa 1830, and then into other countries. 
the Reverend Trolls Buck, 1771-1815, through 1815, in his theological dictionary, has no mention of kenosis. More than a generation later, William Smith and Samuel Cheatham did not list it in their dictionary of Christian antiquities. After that, however, it was not only known, but all too readily accepted. One of the reasons for the ready acceptance of kenosis was the rise of the higher criticism and modernism. The adherents in the church of this new critical thinking found the orthodox Chalcedonian doctrine of Christ much too strong to reconcile with their growing unbelief. A Christ who did not know himself to be God, having been, quote, emptied, unquote, of divinity in his incarnation, was easier for them to accept. Such a Christ had a gradually dawning awareness of his role as he grew in his human self-consciousness. Modernism thus encouraged canoticism. There was another facet. In England, Bishop Gore and other high churchmen adopted a form of canoticism which held that God the Son voluntarily surrendered certain prerogatives and attributes of God while retaining the ethical properties of truth, holiness, and love. The surrendered attributes were those most commonly linked exclusively with the deity. The retained ones can be shared by all men. Thus Christians are to stress truth, holiness, and love while emptying themselves of power, wealth, victory, and other conquering factors. At the same time that Gore and others emptied Christ, they sought to increase the power of the church. However, in emptying Christ of deity, they also hindered his church and his people. They furthered Christian ritual, but not power. To lower Christ's status is also to lower man and the church. Canonicism tells us that evil is power and Christ is helplessness and humiliation. Karl Barth said in Dogmatics in Outline, 1947, quote, The man who calls the Almighty God misses God in the most terrible way. For the Almighty is bad, as power in itself is bad. The Almighty means chaos, evil, the devil. Unquote. Page 48. Given such a perspective, with echoes of it in the Roman Catholic, Protestant, Modernist, fundamentalist, and reformed thought, is it any wonder that the church is helpless? It has sought helplessness as though it were a virtue. It has lusted after an unholy impotence as a higher way of life. It has courted defeat as though this were a virtue. Hymns which speak of victory have been slighted and criticized. Back in my student days, I heard one such ancient hymn of victory ridiculed a hymn ascribed to St. Andrew of Crete, 660-732. through 732. Quote, Christian, dost thou see them? Unquote. After all, St. Andrew's hymn has such lines as, quote, Christian, up and smite them, unquote, and, quote, peace shall follow battle, night shall end in day, unquote. Such militant language was held to be in poor taste. The same was true of Isaac Smith's hymn, Circa 1770, quote, Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on, strong in the strength which God supplies through His eternal Son. Unquote. Smith's hymn goes on to say, quote, From strength to strength go on, wrestle and fight and pray. 
tread all the powers of darkness down and win the well-fought day. Unquote. Winning? A canonic church wants no such songs. Thus, Smith's great hymn is not a common one now. However, as Isaac Watts' better-known hymn, circa 1724, quote, Am I a soldier of the cross? Unquote. Says in a verse often omitted, quote, Sure I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the cross, endure the pain, supported by thy word. Unquote. George J. Webb in, quote, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, unquote, 1837, declared, quote, From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead, till every foe is vanquished, and Christ is Lord indeed, unquote. When the church forsakes canonicism for Christ, the church too will know victory. March 1984 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
Rebel.